0: scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. We signed a climate convention on the importance of economic instruments and free markets were included in this mammoth uh, Agenda 21 document. Rio Declaration. Let me be clear on one fundamental point. Uh, The United States fully intends to be the world's preeminent leader in protecting the global environment. Welcome to Technocracy News and Trends. Patrick Wood here, Editor-in-Chief. And today we're going to take a look at the mind of a technocrat again. Those of you who have followed Technocracy News for very long, or my podcast, or my other interviews that I've done around the country, around the world, know that I spend a lot of time thinking about the mind of a technocrat. I don't want to be a technocrat, but I do want to understand how they think. What makes them tick? Why do they do the things that they do? And if possible, to try and figure out what things they are likely to do in the future as they continue to influence public policy and government, etc. So today we're gonna to talk about the mind of a technocrat. And in particular, uh, we're gonna talk about bioethics. This is something that is sort of in the news these days uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci's wife, uh, Christine uh, Fauci, is a bioethicist, and she has received a degree in other things, but there really is no degree specifically in bioethics, as we'll see. But this is a field, and this is a, an area that we need to understand if we're going to understand the mind of a technocrat. So with that in mind, I want to take you to an article that is posted on technocracy news today which is wednesday i titled the article on technocracy news and trends a moral and ethically challenged technocrats are the real pandemic the source article appeared in the spectator and that is a venerable pub- publication by the way it was started in 1924 it's been around forever it is a conservative voice for sure But it's a very old-line publication, been in continuous existence of publication since 19, uh, what did I say, 1924. Wow, it's a long time. This article is penned by Wesley J. Smith, who is a scholar at the Discovery Institute up in the Northwest. He writes uh, great articles. He's uh, recently become more open about writing about technocracy. And not that this article is all about technocracy, but you'll see that he mentions it it in this article and technocrats as well. So I want to go through this and explain, uh, make a little bit of comment along the way, explain the mind of a technocrat as far as bioethics are concerned. Now I expand that thought myself. I have for ever since I started writing and researching technocracy that there is an ethical void in the whole technocracy meme. Uh, It's like um, they they just simply don't have the ability or the desire to apply any ethical boundaries to that which they are studying, that science which they are using um, to influence society. And we know that Technocracy originally was defined as the science of social engineering. Well, that's the changing of people and the changing of society and the changing of nature by scientific means. And this obviously brings up a lot of questions. What are they doing exactly to do this? Well, as we look through this article, I think you're going to have a pretty good idea uh, or get another idea about the mind of a technocrat. So let's take a look at what Wesley J. Smith has written here. He says, the increasing outsourcing of healthcare policy to medical bureaucrats during the COVID-19 crisis illustrates the dangerous temptation to remove control over policy from democratic deliberation in favor of a technocracy, i.e., rule by experts. In healthcare, such a system would be particularly perilous since the experts placed in charge of policy would be bioethicists whose predominant views disparage the sanctity of human life. Now here he uh, hits on the first point that's that's really key here. Uh, Disparage the sanctity of human life. The original writings of technocracy back in 1934 underscored this very point. It's never changed since there is no sanctity of human life in the mind of a technocrat. That's because they believe that human life is just no different than any other animal life on Earth, just a bag of atoms, a collection of molecules that happen to be able to think, that happen to be able to do stuff, but they, the scientists and the engineers of that day, believed that they were somehow better than anybody else and that they were like at the top of the pecking order, the top of the food chain, however you express it. But they had some divine right almost. Well, they didn't believe in God, but they had a, a, some type of a, a divine right or calling to be over everybody else and decide what everybody else should do. Wesley goes on. How does one become a bioethicist? While many universities offer degrees in bioethics, There are no precise qualifications. Indeed, practitioners are not professionally licensed as are attorneys or physicians, and for that matter, barbers. The most prominent bioethicists are university professors with degrees in philosophy and medicine or law. But even that isn't a given. For example, because my opinions about bioethical issues are frequently published, I am often called a bioethicist, not a term I would choose for myself, even though I took no bioethics courses in school. Here is the terrifying problem. The most influential of our would-be healthcare overlords hold immoral or amoral values not shared by most of those who would be impacted by their policy prescriptions. For example, most mainstream practitioners reject the belief that human beings have unique values and unless they have a modifier such as Catholic or pro-life in front of their identifier, embrace a utilitarian quality-of-life approach to medical decision-making, according to which some of us are judged to have greater worth than others based on discriminatory criteria such as cognitive capacity, state of health, and age. This ideology leads the field's most prominent leaders into very dark places. In 1997, bioethics professor John Hardwig argued in favor of what is known in the field as the duty to die. Hardwig's advocacy was not published in an obscure corner of the internet of little consequence. Rather, It was presented with all due respect in the Hastings Center Report, the world's most prestigious bioethics journal. That fact alone means that the duty to die has long been deemed respectable in the field. Hardwick argues that to have reached the age of, say, 75 or 80, Without being ready to die is itself a moral failing, the sign of a life out of touch with life's basic realities. Why? Well, he quotes, a duty to die is more likely when continuing to live will impose significant burdens, emotional burdens, extensive caregiving, destruction of life plans, and yes, financial hardship on your family and loved ones. This is the fundamental insight underlying a duty to die. Back in 1977, Hardwig's denigration of people he deemed burdens was a minority view in bioethics. But over the years, as the field gained increasing influence, its premier practitioners grew more pro- uh, pro- pronouncedly ideological in the Hardwig manner arguing often and repeatedly for reducing the moral status of the most vulnerable among us, in some cases even going so far as to redefine helpless human beings as mere natural resources ripe for the harvest. Here are just a few examples. Now listen to these. Paying women to gestate and abort. Bioethicist Jacob Apple argued in the Huffington Post that pregnant women who want to abort should be paid to gestate longer before terminating so that fetal organs could be harvested and used in transplant medicine. That would increase the number of abortions, he admitted, but he said a market in fetal organs could bring solace to women who have already decided upon abortion but desire that some additional social good come from the procedure. Here's another one. Forcing caregivers to starve dementia patients. (laughs) Prominent bioethicist Thaddeus Mason Pope and others want dementia patients to be allowed to instruct future caregivers to deny them spoon feeding when they become incompetent. In such cases, they want caregivers to be legally bound to starve their patients to death. This would apply even if the patient willingly eats. In other words, starvation as the new death with dignity, and that's in quotes. Here's another. Experimenting on cognitively disabled non-persons, that's in quotes. Writing in a Kennedy Institute of Ethics journal, bioethics bigwig Thomas Boche opined that some cognitively disabled human beings should not be viewed as persons, meaning that, <clears throat> meaning that could be treated in the same way we treat relevantly similar non-humans. For example, they might be aggressively used as human research subjects and sources of organs. This goes on. I encourage you to read the whole article, by the way, yourself. But this is absolutely incredible. Listen to this one. Harvesting hearts is a form of euthanasia. An advocacy article published in the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation argued that patients who wish to be euthanized be killed by having their hearts removed for transplantation. The authors write that, quote, living donation, close quote, is the correct term to use, even though this is normally used for people who donate their kidney and do not die as a result of donation, close quote. Yes, indeed, Wesley writes, stripping a beating heart out of a patient's body will be 100% fatal. One would think that in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic, bioethicists would place their dehumanizing advocacy efforts at least on temporary hold. No such luck, he writes. The Journal of Medical Ethics just published a piece explicitly aimed at COVID-19 patients by the internationally prominent bioethicists and Oxford professors, Julian saville and Dominic Wilkinson. First, the authors want, to, <clears throat> want a license to permit seriously ill COVID-19 patients to be consensually experimented upon, even if the research is dangerous. This is from the article, An Extreme Altruism in a Pandemic. Quote, Competent people now or in the early phase of their illness, when they retain competence, should be able to make advanced directives for extreme altruism. This might take the form of consenting now to trials of dangerous drugs. They could also consent in advance to other interventional studies of significant risk if they would imminently die. That might seem reasonable, Wesley writes, assuming that the test would be aimed at saving their lives, but the bioethicists want to include potentially lethal experimentation in the license that would not benefit the patient. And here's what they say. When a patient will certainly die, as Smith writes, a sometimes mistaken diagnosis, as we all know, They should be able to consent while competent to experimentation being performed on them for others. Can you sense the greater good here? Even if the experimentation may itself likely or possibly end their life sooner, even if it would not benefit the patient and may even hasten their death. The authors then boldly plunge even deeper into the utilitarian swamp to urge organ donation euthanasia of COVID-19 patients in places where hastening death by doctors is legal. The article states, organ donation euthanasia could possibly apply to some cases of COVID-19 where life-prolonging medical treatment is either withdrawn or withheld in those jurisdictions where euthanasia is legal, as in Netherlands and Belgium. Euthanasia could occur by surgical removal of vital organs under deep anesthesia. They also want to allow experimentation on nursing home patients, even if they are not sick. The article continues, Some residents in nursing homes and care facilities are competent. Some of these may choose to take on significant risk in the war on COVID-19, they could also be allowed to consent with full disclosure of risks and no pressure to take part in risky research which would accelerate the discovery of vaccines or treatments. Close quote. To prevent unwanted burdening of medical resources if a patient becomes ill, the authors would restrict the experimentation to patients who had, quote, completed a living well indicating that they would not wish for invasive medical treatments in the event of becoming seriously unwell, meaning nursing home patients could be intentionally infected with coronavirus and then, if they became seriously ill, simply allowed to die. Meanwhile, back at the Hastings Center Report, bioethicist Larry Churchill, who is himself age 75, in that death zone, by the way, advocates a type of duty to die upon the age. From on being an elder in a pandemic, he states, does being elderly incur duties others do not have? I believe the answer is yes, and foremost among these is an obligation for parasimonious use of newly scarce and expensive healthcare care resources. Here's Churchill's awful idea. Elderly patients, in other words, those most at risk from the current plague, have the moral duty to go on <laughs> to the back of the line for receiving life-saving medical treatment and, when available, vaccines. If that causes them to die when they might otherwise have lived, that's okay because it illuminates, quote, the integrity of elderhood. Enough, Wesley writes. My point in writing this essay isn't to merely highlight the many dehumanizing and invidiously discriminatory proposals. Believe me, I have just scratched the surface that have been made over the years by luminaries in the bioethics movement. Rather, it is a warning of how profoundly the do-no-harm principle of the Hippocratic Oath has been corroded by the so-called experts, meaning that if we yield control of our health care public policies to a bioethical technocracy, these are the immoral values likely to be imposed on all of us for our own safety and that of those we love, particularly the elderly, people with physical and development disabilities, and especially ill, we must, we must, we must societally isolate from the bioethicist pandemic. He couldn't have written it any better. He couldn't have stated it any more clearly. Ethics is simply a non-term amongst technocrats and that includes bioethics as well. They have virtually no regard for human life. It's just something to experiment on, something to mess with, to see what can we get it to do. This is not the future that America wants, and I've stated repeatedly that I do believe that the current great panic of 2020 is the work of technocrats pushing technocracy to kill capitalism and free enterprise so that they can roll in and literally take over the world society. This is not just an American issue. But I will state in light of all the clear science and all the clear medical professionals who are stating that face masks, social distancing, and other things that are being done to try and you know prevent, quote unquote, the coronavirus from spreading, contact tracing, things like that, all of these things are political. None of them are backed by real science. That basically means the whole thing is really just a big scam of epic proportions. I've stated it as the coup d'etat of technocracy. I believe that's what it is. It's global for the first time in history. The entire global economic system has been shut down. Why haven't these technocrats who have created these crazy models of uh, what the pandemic is gonna do to the world Why haven't they put assumptions into their models about the effects it would have on society at large? What about all the elderly people who have died? What about all the people who have lost jobs and are suffering under complete fear and lockdown in their own homes? What happened to all the people uh, that have not gone to hospitals and doctors to get preventative care when they desperately needed it? What about the people who get chest pains who are afraid to go to the hospital because they'll be all alone and they can't even be visited by their family if they do have a heart attack. They'd rather just die at home. Why don't they put these things into their computer models to figure out the entire net effect of their recommended policies? See, they don't do that because it doesn't fit their narrative. It simply never occurs to them from an ethical point of view that this is something that they should do. People like Dr. Anthony Fauci are just despicably dangerous to America. They have caused more carnal damage to America than we've had in our entire history outside of World War. And I have to say at some point, we'll be approaching that as well the political system must stop these technocrats from having undue influence in our society we did not ask them to come with this kind of these kind of ideas we did not ask them to do what they're doing and yes our political system should be advised by science got nothing no problem with that But they should not be the ones who are allowed to create and dictate public policy as they currently are doing. This is going to come back to bite us again and again and again. And now that these technocrats have got their claws in society, they're not going to let go until somebody literally just slaps them back and says, get out of the room now, and escort them out of the building with their box of goodies in hand and stuff and just say, your pass is now revoked, you cannot get back in. That's what happens, by the way, to contractors at big companies when they're done with you. They simply say, time to leave, and you put everything on your desk in a box. They walk you out the door, take your pass, and say, have a nice day. (laughs) And that's the end of you. You never go back in the building again. Well, this is what we need to do to these technocrats at this point, I'm afraid. I don't know how to do that but our politicians need to wake up. Well, that's all I have for today. Uh, If you would be so kind, if you're listening to this on YouTube, please do give it a thumbs up. It really helps other people to know whether they should come and listen to this. And also, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, you can just do that right now if you're on YouTube or if you're on Podbean. The audio version of this will appear on Podbean, by the way, and eventually will appear on YouTube as well. For those of you who don't like to look at video, but you like to listen to the audio, if you're not on the mailing list at technocracy.news, go there and sign up. You'll get a daily digest of the three articles that I post every day. And you can just read the headlines, or you can click on them and go to the website and check it out. And lastly, if you have any mind to... Uh, throws a little bit of support towards technocracy news and trends and me personally, of course, to keep the whole machine running here. It's not cheap and it's not easy either, but please do go to patreon.com forward slash technocracy and you can make a donation of even $2 a month. It's incredibly helpful and encouraging to me to keep on the work of exposing technocracy. Until next time, I'm Patrick Wood. Have a great week.